but we're here in Melbourne with Craig Harper from the University of Tennessee. I think we'll just start, go around the room and introduce yourselves. Start with Craig. Craig Harper, uh, second time to Australia, and it's proven to be just as, if not more, fun, entertaining, and educational and informative as the last trip. Glad to be here. Uh, Daryl Snowden, Development Manager at Building Game Australia. While we are the duck people, uh, great to sit around with some like-minded hunters and discuss some of the issues, common issues we have together with uh, deer and duck hunting. So it's been a fabulous day. Rod Hill from Tasmania. I'm a professional forester, farmer, hunter, and member of ABA for 40 odd years. And uh, I've been glad to be showing uh, Craig around uh, for the last uh, two to three weeks in Tasmania and Victoria. Carl Brumley, State President, ABA of Victoria. Uh, Great to be here with Craig, learning a lot about feedlots and food plots, sorry, and uh, hope to learn a lot more. Very good. Right, um, we'll launch into it. We've just had a bit of a policy forum today in Melbourne with different bureaucrats and hunting organisations. Daryl came along with the Sporting Shooters Association, just talking about what can be done and and what to us seem like the stark differences between where we're at with wildlife management and where they're at in the USA, but. So we'll start off. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, Craig, where you, where you come from and how you got into wildlife management? Well, I'm a 10th generation North Carolinian. Grew up in North Carolina on a small family farm and uh, finally went to college <clears throat> after doing a year of plumbing work and wanted to do something related to wildlife. And I got a wildlife management degree I went on then and finished a bachelor's degree in uh, natural resources management and a master's degree in biology working with waterfowl and then a PhD in forest resources working with wild turkeys. And since have worked uh, as a- You see the smile there. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. <laughs> I have done quite a bit of work with birds. <laughs> I was a wildlife technician with the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission and uh, after finishing my PhD, got on the faculty at the University of Tennessee, where I've been a professor of wildlife management for the past 21 years next month, as a matter of fact. Right, so a long history in dealing mostly with game species. Mostly with game and mostly with white-tailed deer, uh, a lot with wild turkeys, rough grouse, northern bobwhite, some with uh, songbirds, uh, currently have a project investigating the effect of fire on eastern box turtles. So the majority of my work, really all of my work, my research, <coughs> focuses on applied management and how management activities influence the habitat, mostly for game species, some non-game species, but the research I undertake is answering questions that can be taken directly to land managers, wildlife managers, and be used in the field. And so, of course, I have graduate students and technicians to help me with all of that. And my appointment with the University of Tennessee is the Extension Wildlife Specialist. So I work with UT Extension through the Institute of Agriculture, and all of the research that we implement is then delivered directly to our network of extension agents across the state of Tennessee and directly then to interested landowners who have uh, issues, interest in, in wildlife, which sometimes revolves around wildlife damage management, but also around management to promote a particular species. I work very closely with our state wildlife agency in Tennessee, as well as other state wildlife agencies. I travel to 20 to 25 states a year, uh, helping deliver information related to wildlife management, most often related to managing lands for white-tailed deer, for landowners, as well as conducting in-service training for state agency biologists and managers. So state agencies, uh, for example, want to provide continuing education for their biologists and managers who obviously are no longer in school. And so it's good for them to have 
uh, folks like myself and many others come in and help provide the latest information to the biologists and managers. I, I do a lot of that through the Quality Deer Management Association. I work very closely with them, with Brian Murphy, Joe Hamilton, Kip Adams, Matt Ross in particular, and uh, we do a lot of workshops related to whitetail deer management across the country. That's a, that's a good segue into what I suppose the shared interest we have here in Australia and what's, what's brought about your visit is an interest we've got, particularly in Tasmania, where Brian Murphy came out in the early 90s and set up a quality deer management regime and something that we'd love to get going here in Victoria on holiday. Can you give us a rundown on what quality deer management is? Quality deer management is a philosophy <clears throat> where you're managing the deer herd within the existing habitat constraints. And so you, you first look at the density of deer and you do not want the density of deer to exceed the carrying capacity of the land to hold and support deer as well as other species. So it usually is a objective of the landowner who is practicing quality deer management to keep the deer density below a level that would have adverse effects not only on the deer population, but also on populations of other species as well. Uh, the most common example in the Eastern United States would be where deer densities are at a level in forested environments that the deer are eating most of the vegetation in the understory of the forest. And when that happens, there's a number of songbirds that are found only in forests that require that understory vegetation for their nesting or foraging. And so when that happens, when deer are over browsing in those areas, you won't find those forest songbirds. And it also has deleterious effects on, on other wildlife species as well. So it's quality deer management is managing deer at an ecological level to support not only the deer, but other wildlife species. And then with interest towards hunters, you're managing the deer population such that the sex ratio is relatively even uh, because they're born at roughly a one-to-one -one sex ratio, but also, and probably more importantly, with an even age distribution. So you have young age animals in the population, middle-aged animals in the population, as well as older-aged animals in the population. And of course, if you have older-aged male white-tailed deer, by default, then you have deer in the population with larger antlers. Uh, antler size is determined uh, greatly by age, as well as the nutrition and, and genetics of the deer. But unless you have older age class animals in the population, and the vast majority of situations, you're not gonna have deer with the larger antler sizes that most hunters are interested in. So trophy is nowhere in the mission statement, goals, or objectives of quality deer management. Uh, it's about managing healthy deer, healthy habitat, and doing so in a way that provides habitat for other wildlife species and in a way that increases the excitement among deer hunters. That's a practical application yeah. of that Aldo Leopold concept of managing wildlife in harmony. Very much so. Well, it's actually management in Australia. We talk a lot about game management and deer management in particular. And the game management that's done in Victoria is the management of game hunters, not the, not the actual game themselves. And when we talk about deer management, especially here in Victoria, we're talking about managing populations. We're not talking about improving the population and improving the quality of the animals, we're just talking about reducing numbers. Yeah. It's really refreshing to hear that management used around actually doing something positive towards the, the herd itself. And we heard that around the table today that from government's perspective it's about tackling overabundance. Yeah. Tackling abundance, not about managing, overabundance. Managing population. And and the beauty of the quality deer management concept is it, it gives you that, but but it also gives the hunters and, and other wildlife what it wants as well. It's it's not just a well and a flat tool. It also relieves a burden on the government agencies. For example, <coughs> crop protection tags or what we call depredation tags are commonly provided to agricultural producers 
in areas of the United States where deer densities are high and are ca causing problems with crop production. When those agricultural producers allow and implement quality deer management on their properties, the hunters then remove the excess animals and reduce the population to a level at which the agricultural producers are no longer suffering crop damage. Also, at the same time, they are not killing the younger males. They are allowing the males to enter both middle and older age classes. So for white-tailed deer, that would be uh, consistent with not shooting deer until they reach, for example, three to four years of age. And oftentimes on, on some properties, five or six years of age, white-tailed deer peak in antler size between five and seven years. 90% of their antler production is achieved at four years of age. So the hunters are keeping the deer population at a level at which the agricultural producers are not suffering crop depredation and they're managing the deer herd such that there's older aged males with larger antlers. Now that increases the value of the property. And those agricultural producers who are managing their lands in such a way oftentimes have lease situations where the hunters are paying them on an annual or on a three to five year contract basis and they are demanding higher prices as a result of their management as other crop producers. And it has gotten to the point now that on some properties, some farms, the agricultural producers actually are making more money off of the deer hunters hunting their property than the crops that are being raised on a per acre basis. Really? It is. Um, unlike here where we get three deer on a property and they're overabundant species and they need to be killed. <laughs> yeah, and how much of that is, oh, certainly in these areas where deer are overabundant, but, yep. but there's this hysteria. I don't know, you probably haven't seen much media while you've been here, Craig, you've been too busy out in the field, but <laughs> there, there's an hysteria about wild deer here in Australia um, that's often exaggerated and it's often hyperbolic and Tasmania is a great example, isn't it, Rod, where there were farmers who thought they had a deer problem until they went and counted the number of wallabies in their paddock. And, and all of a sudden, because deer are this introduced species, they're, they're a very convenient scapegoat for poor land management practices, I suppose. Uh, uh, another point that I was going to make with regard to the agricultural producers in the U.S. Uh, managing the deer on their property under quality deer management <clears throat> is that when that is implemented, their need then for what we call crop depredation tags or what uh, many Australians, as I understand, call crop protection permits is eliminated. Uh, so hunters are allowed in many of these areas limitless antlerless deer but the number of antler deer that they can kill is restricted considerably. Oftentimes to only one um, on well-managed properties, at most two. So by killing one or two bucks at most per hunter, but oftentimes limitless antlerless deer, essentially limitless deer, and it varies of course by state. Uh, and in some states, maybe you can kill one a day, some three a day, some, some actually limitless, uh, but that allows less pressure <coughs> from, the gut, from the public with regard to a, quote, deer density problem. So you talk about population density and carrying capacities. How do you calculate those, those numbers? Um, there's a number of techniques that are used to estimate deer density from you know, most common spotlighting to infrared steel cameras to uh, infrared cameras, uh, ground thermal imaging where you drive around with a ground thermal imager <coughs> to aerial vertical looking uh, infrared. Um, but regardless of method, unless you have a marked population, your estimate, the, the accuracy of your estimate is totally unknown. Mm -hmm. You can estimate the precision 
of your estimate if you do it enough times, but you never know the accuracy of your estimate. And we've done research looking at different deer density estimators, as the ones I just mentioned, and it's not uncommon to get a range of, and, and pardon me, but I'm gonna use my old English measurements here, uh, a range of 15 deer per square mile to 40 deer per square mile on the same property, yeah. conducted at the same time with different estimates. So which is right? You don't know. What's interesting is it does not matter. Your density estimate does not matter. Let's say, for example, you conduct a spotlighting count and you actually then take the next step and analyze it with what we call distance sampling. And you determine that there's 20 deer per square mile. What does that tell you? Says there's 20 deer per square mile. That tells you that your estimate is 20 deer per square mile. Does that tell you that you need to shoot more does or fewer does or maintain the current level of antlerless harvest? It doesn't tell you anything. That's exactly <laughs> right. So what tells you whether you need to kill more does, fewer does, or the same number. I guess that would come back to my question around the carrying capacity of the actual land. All right, but before we answer that, what would you think would be the best metric to determine whether you should shoot more does or fewer, and I keep saying does, instead of deer, because, you know, bucks don't give birth. <laughs> they never have, never will. And so you do not regulate deer density by shooting males. You regulate deer density, and it doesn't matter if it's fallow deer, uh, hog deer, white-tailed deer. You, you you manage density by shooting females. That's the 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 ones that are producing additional deer. Yep. And so, what metric do you think would be appropriate to determine if you need to shoot more does? Same number of does or fewer does? The ratio. Hmm? The ratio. If you're on a farm, for example, and they're telling you we need to shoot more deer, what metric are they going by? Too many deer. The, the number of deer. What, what, what determines too many deer? How they survive damage, what they see. There you go. Damage. What else? I would have put it as perception. <laughs> as Barry said before. Uh, Especially in Victoria, the story within the forest area around what what they're consuming in um, feed the, the the effect of their uh, browsing in the woods that that's that's very good. You mentioned the damage to uh, crop production. That's good. What else? What would a deer manager collect off of deer from deer that had been killed? What's the first thing you might do to a deer after you kill it and take it back to the skinning shed? Gut it. You might gut it, and then what do you do? I'll jump in there. I'll help you out. This is supposed to be a conversation, and y'all have to play. That's a role playing this game with Craig. So basically, what he's asking you is that you can't determine your deer density by the number, but you can actually monitor their weight level. Right, so if you weigh the deer, and when you skin the deer, you notice if it does or do, does not have fat. Yep. We, we oftentimes uh, measure the fat around the kidneys and get what we call a kidney fat index. So that is a good biological metric of the overall health of the deer. The average weight per age class of females, the average weight of age class of males, uh, the kidney fat index of those, and how much crop damage is, is uh, being suffered, how much uh, damage are deer doing to the forest understory, etc. So it doesn't matter what your density estimate is, whether it's 20 or 40 or 80, all that matters is the effect of the deer that you have. So if the effect is deleterious, then you shoot more deer. If the effect is not deleterious and, and everything is perfectly good, you might shoot fewer deer to allow more deer to be on the property so hunters then can see more deer and be more satisfied 
and they might then pay more money to hunt on those lands. And so you balance that, the effect on the habitat, with the biological metrics of the deer, and that's how you determine. And, and, and it's not a, sh a sure absolute value each season. It's something that kind of ebbs and flows as you go along. But you get a very good feel then for how many deer need to be killed. And you do that primarily by the effect, you know, if you're a, not necessarily on, you know, your density estimate. That doesn't mean you should never try to estimate the, the density of deer because you certainly can use that as an index. And if you're doing it the same way every year and compare your density estimate to body weights and, and influence on crops and habitat, you know, that, that's certainly very good information. But don't try to determine how many deer should be killed just on a density estimate, unless you have a marked population. Then that that then you can truly uh, determine the accuracy of your estimate. So that's that's quality deer management mm. in a nutshell. Well, it's it's a complex and dynamic situation, as the Tasmanian experience is showing us. In the USA, um, well, in the world, really. The Quality Deer Management Association is at the vanguard of quality deer management. Um, you go back to stuff that Al Brothers wrote and then Jared Hamilton developed it into this organisation. Um, you spoke at our 50th anniversary dinner, the ADA's 50th anniversary dinner, about the close connection between the Australian Deer Association and the Quality Deer Management Association. I wonder if you could just touch on that for us. Well, as, as you just mentioned, <coughs> this philosophy of managing for better quality and, and really that's getting at an older age class of deer that is within the constraint of the existing habitat that our brothers developed in South Texas uh, through the, the 1970s. And Joe Hamilton uh, met and discussed this with, with our brothers and, and then later came to Australia and saw the model of the Australian Deer Association and then took that back home and said, you know what, I think we can move deer management in the U.S. forward with an organization that is bringing deer hunters together using science-based information. And that is what he did. And it's, it's not just my opinion, it is demonstrable that the foresight and work of Joe Hamilton changed deer management in North America. And I say North America because it is practiced in Canada and Mexico just as it is in the US. And even if state wildlife agencies do not necessarily espouse or try to practice quality deer management within their agencies. The hunters in every state now are doing so by themselves, by default, because they have seen how this philosophy changes deer management to the betterment of habitat, other wildlife species, and obviously to the hunter. So it's, it's extraordinary when you think about it that, that work of the like that, that we've met that you know well has changed the management of a species of wildlife at a population level of white-tailed deer. That's exactly right. And, and of course, as, as Joe will readily tell you, it was not just him, but the work of many others. <coughs> and there were many in state wild, uh, in uh, universities, uh, such as Larry Marchington, such as Dave Glenn, such as Harry Jacobson and others that helped bring together the science-based information that was needed to promote this philosophy. And then you had hardworking, energetic people like Brian Murphy and more recently uh, Kip Adams, Matt Ross, and, and many of the regional folks and, and the staff throughout the Quality Deer Management Association that have helped bring this to fruition. Let's, um you, you mentioned Brian. Brian came here to Australia in 1993, 94, as a 
as you would say, the young man full of piss and vinegar and fire in the belly to change the world um, and bought this philosophy of quality deer management to Tasmania for the fallow herd there. You've just spent a week in Tasmania, two weeks in Tasmania. What's your impression on how quality deer management's going in that state? Oh, well, yeah, one week in Tasmania and, and two yeah. weeks in, in Victoria. Um, it's, it's primarily a property-based management strategy as, as I perceive. And of course, as it is in, in the US, some properties are, are doing better than others. Uh, I think one thing that is very proactive and insightful with Tasmania is that they have a one buck limit. Um, I do think they would do themselves a favor. They could move forward on a few fronts. Uh, for example, if they had some deer management units, I think that could help them with the strategy of harvesting an adequate number of antlerless deer in the state where there are some areas where a lot of antlerless deer need to be killed because of crop depredation uh, issues, uh, other issues regarding high deer densities. There are other areas of the state where deer density is about where it should be. And there's other areas of the state where the deer density could be increased. So by having deer management sure, units. I'm sure there's people from the Tasmanian department cringing at the thought. <laughs> well, it, 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 it's something that is, uh, again, I use the word demonstrable because we do it commonly in, in the US. I, uh, nearly every state, you know, minus perhaps very small states, I don't know if Rhode Island has deer management units, for example, but nearly every state has deer management units where the number of deer, the number of antlerless deer, uh, the seasons in which, the dates in which you can take deer uh, are, are different because Deer densities are not dynamic, um, or excuse me, are not static across the, the state. It's, it's, it's and not only dynamic, but uh, there are some areas, as I just mentioned, where there are very few deer and other, er, other areas where they're essentially overpopulated. And so you can't have the same regulations over an entire area where deer densities are so different. And that management has to be constantly evolving like you said, these wildlife populations are dynamic. We're, we're about Absolutely. to see this in a big way in Victoria, I believe, when adaptive harvest comes in for waterfowl. Mm. Um, that there is no, once you get into properly managing a wildlife population, you can't set and forget it. You cannot say it's going to be one buck and two does and this is the season forevermore because wildlife doesn't work that way. That's exactly right. Mm. That's right. Mm -hmm. So you, when you're in Tasmania, Rod Hills here, and Rod manages a property fairly intensively as for quality deer management? Basically, yeah, my property is only a very, very small property and uh, you know, I, I do uh, intensively you know, manage it you know, with 10% uh, yeah, of my uh, properties you know, put into food plots and other things for, for wildlife, that's deer, wallaby, duck, quail and so forth. And uh, yeah, look, you know, I started it out as a passion, uh, but I found after about five to eight years that uh, I was failing really didn't know what I was doing and along came uh, Dr. Harper about two to three years ago and uh, happened to have a, a book in his back pocket and said you know, you probably should read this right so I spent the next month you know trying to understand uh, what uh, soil analysis was what pH was for soils uh, what different uh, you know crops were going to put into uh, benefit uh, wildlife you know from you know, deer, duck, you know, wallaby and quail and so forth and uh, with a bit of a few you know, intense emails between Craig and I, he you know, sent back and said, you need to try this crop for your soils, which I did for the last two to three years. And, uh, and uh, I went from having you know, one deer visiting the property to probably having you know, 20 to 30 deer visiting the property. And I've set up deer blinds, I've set up tree stands, I've uh, you know, made it an enjoyable thing for the family to come along and actually you know, just enjoy what I do. And it's uh, been you know, one of those things where you know, uh, near my property you know, last year, uh, a 243-inch buck was shot. Another one this year went you know, into 247. So the potential from you know, an area that I call wasteland has been transformed from 
so similar to uh, Blom Bay and Sunday Island in the very protective uh, little uh, food plots. And as I said, it's, uh, it's been it's been very enjoyable and it's been an enjoyable journey. But with any farm or any food plot, the work never ends. If you look for the end, then don't get into it. Whether you're actually you know, working machinery, buying cedars like I did this year, new uh, cedars to actually direct drill into crops. Um, it's never ending that you, know, you, you try to aspire to do something better to improve what you're doing. You know, that's exactly right, Rod. As, as I tell people, uh, wildlife management, and let's break it down a little further and say habitat management is not an event. It's a way of life. So if the sun continues to shine and the rain continues to fall, which I understand has been a little limited here in the last plants continue to grow and what we call ecological succession continues to advance. And so you can't allow all of your property to advance into forest if you're trying to manage for species that use or require what we call early successional plant communities. And you know, a fallow field, for example, is an early successional plant community. Uh, plant communities dominated by forbs and grasses and scattered shrubs coming in. So for, the, for those playing at home, what's a forb? A forb is a broad-leafed herbaceous plant. Uh, something that you might plant, for example, would be clovers. That's a broad-leafed herbaceous plant. That is not a grass. And so, uh, on, on the, you know, we've been uh, going around from property to property, and uh, very commonly you see grasses, you see forbs, you see sedges, rushes, ferns. Those are all types of herbaceous plants. And so having plant communities that are dominated by those early successional herbaceous plants is, is extremely important for forage for deer. It's also extremely important for cover for some deer, such as hog deer. Uh, you know, of, of the properties that we have visited, uh, looking at, at, at hog deer here in Victoria, it's striking that so many of them have such a heavy component of forest and many folks are wondering why there aren't more hog deer. That's simply because those areas have succeeded through ecological succession out of hog deer habitat and into samber habitat. And that's probably been a, a perception, an, an unguided perception certainly here locally is that you want lots of lots of cover and a little bit of pasture and that's what's perfect for deer and it's probably something that's just been arrived on by people naturally but when you think about it that's that's certainly the case. so you were talking earlier today about the different types of eaters that deer are um, intermediate eaters and and for hog deer and fallow deer what you what you want is certainly a bit of cover but you need that pasture don't you yeah, when, when you talk about the types of feeders, uh, in, in general, they're classified from grazers to browsers. And grazers, such as cattle, eat a lot of grass. And uh, of course, they're ruminants, but they are able to digest relatively coarse and oftentimes uh, relatively indigestible portions of, of grass and other plant materials that, that some other animals can't digest as easily. You go down the scale into intermediate feeders and in, in our country, in the U.S., uh, elk are classified as an intermediate uh, feeder or, or forager. Uh, in, in many areas they eat predominantly grasses but of course also will eat uh, forbs will eat browse, browse being the leaves of trees, shrubs, vines, brambles. Uh, they also will eat mast, whether hard mast or soft mast, but they're often seen primarily eating uh, mostly grass. That's the same way as hog deer and fallow deer, both of which are, are termed uh, intermediate uh, 
foraging animals. However, what an animal selects to eat is based on what it has available, right? It's very pretty simple. And so as you go down the scale, next is what we call concentrate selectors. And that's what white-tailed deer are classified as. And white-tailed deer, as a concentrate selector, concentrate most of their feeding on select plants and select plant parts. So there's some plants that deer really don't like to eat at all. There's some plants that they really do like. And of those plants they really do like, they really like selective young portions of those plants because they're more palatable, tastier, more digestible, and highly nutritious. And so as a plant matures, any plant, the younger the material, the more digestible it is because the cell walls inside the plant are not as large and the lignin, that's the relatively indigestible portion of the plant, is not as great. And so young plant parts are always chosen, selected over older plant parts. And then as you move further down the scale into the browsers, such as goats, goats can digest highly coarse material of, you know, even bark and uh, usually the, the leaves of just about anything they can get a hold of. You know, they, they will eat just about anything. So the intermediate feeders, such as elk, it's been inter very interesting as we have looked at the diet of elk when they have been uh, relocated into portions of the eastern U.S. where we've looked at what they've eaten. Their diet there actually is very similar to white-tailed deer where they will eat as many or more forbs as they do grass, most likely because they're more abundant there. And so be careful, the, the message is, be careful at what you are managing for on your property based on what you see the animals eat because they're selecting only what they have available. If they had other things available, they might select those more heavily and those might be more nutritious. And the example here, and I'm no hog deer or fallow deer expert, but if there were more forbs available, I suspect the fallow deer and hog deer would act much like the elk do in the United States. And those forbs are much, much more nutritious than the grasses. And so as Rod has seen on his property, as he has provided more forbs on his property, the fallow deer have flocked in and really have concentrated their foraging on these forbs. Right. You spoke about uh, Blombe, you know, Bull Pool, and I'll throw Sunday Island in that mix. And you said uh, disturbance is necessary on those areas. What did you mean, and what do you um, classify disturbance as? Well, if you're managing for hog deer, you need a preponderance of early successional plant communities, such as tall grasses and forbs and scattered shrubs for that type of forage and cover, not forest. Hog deer certainly will use uh, the periphery, the fringe of forest for cover, but those early successional communities are used both as cover and of course are critical for forage for hog deer. And so when you have properties that are predominantly forest or they are succeeding into forest, then the habitat for hog deer then begins to decline and the population of hog deer thus begin to decline. And just prior to that, you also notice the weights of the hog deer beginning to decline. And so for example, in these areas that are predominantly forested, you might see hog deer with average weights of 25 kilograms whereas on properties that have much more open lands and early successional communities, the average weights may be 45 to 50 kilograms. So it, it's that extreme. Okay. And, and if, if we don't do something to disturb or implement some kind of disturbance such as fire, uh, timber harvest or removing trees or mowing, 
disking, herbicide applications, whatever disturbance practice you can implement on various properties, you have to do something to set back the woody plant community and prevent it from dominating and becoming forest if you're managing for hog period. Does that make sense? Makes sense. And I'll, I'll you know, support what Craig's saying there. You know, I know if you guys you know, raise your eyebrows about you know, some of the levels of disturbance you spoke about, not being able to apply those techniques on you know, public land where your hands are tied. But from uh, you know, the state agency's point of view, whether it's you know, parks or you know, anyone else, they need to manage those lands you know, with fire. And that's for not only for a whole period, but for all their native species, their mapropods, their, you know, their possum, their other wildlife that rely on, that, uh, on that, that land. Because if you allow it to develop the woodlands, there's a chance that you actually lose some of those species Absolutely. on those public lands. And I'll just go back to, there was a bit of background noise there before, it's 20 to 6 in the afternoon and we, we had to open five cans of beer so you may have heard some noise with beer and cashews flying out on the table so we apologize for that Barry got himself five just interesting conversation around um, when we're talking about the habitat and the disturbance so in Victoria we face a huge problem with that, that very issue on public land it doesn't matter what it is if it's native you can't touch it so we now have a bunch of state game reserves we've got 200 state game reserves they're there for hunting, for, for um, game management as such. These are becoming overgrown. Um, we've got swamps full of trees that you can't walk through. We've got wetlands that are full of reeds because we can't burn them, we can't remove them. We've got all these issues that um, we can't touch any of that vegetation. We and it really limits what we can do. We saw that at Flog Bay the other day. Craig and I went into a Brett Mills and um, there used to be some fantastic, there's still sections of that we've got good duck hunting, but there's, there's duck swamps there that have yeah. completely dried out and just become salt beds. Yeah. Um, large areas, and what Rob was talking about, other plant communities. So there's three nationally listed endangered plant communities, some of which, you know, there's only three extant populations, one of them's in Blonde Bay, um, Sun Orchid and the Swamp Everlasting. And this succession of the forest is wiping out habitat for these plant communities. So it's not just about managing that public land for deer. The thought that in this state, these plants that have existed for Cradle Creek, 40,000 years yeah. or longer, will go extinct on our watch when the remedy is right in front of us and we have it within our means to do it. It's just, it's mind boggling that we can stand by and let this happen. And, and the beauty of getting hunters involved to fix that is, we can also get some quality deer out of it. So, well, well I, I can tell you <laughs> what what has happened in the U.S. and and from what I have seen here over the past three weeks, I think there uh, certainly are, are, are similarities. Um, wildfire has been battled for 150 years. And uh, beginning in the 1930s, uh, the federal government had a really strong push to put out all fires and to not use fire as a land management tool. And so we have, and I'm going to use the word suffered, fire suppression for nearly a hundred years before the science finally began to show, uh, let's, let's hold on a second, because we're actually losing some plant communities and uh, wildlife species that are dependent on those plant communities that have been maintained with fire. And so that, that took a long time to get that kind of information worked out, then to transfer that information through universities into uh, uh, new and young budding biologists and managers and to get that information disseminated. And, and now it is fully recognized throughout uh, state natural resource agencies, both uh, wildlife, forestry, and, and, and others, that, that fire is a very critical and much needed tool. And without fire, which is entirely natural, we are losing 
especially many plant communities and different plant species associated with those communities. And so we are implementing much more fire now than in the last 20 to 30 years. And we have really been amazed at how quickly these plant communities can respond once you allow sunlight to get back to the ground and you're using fire to continually set back succession and we are seeing species pop out of the seed bank that have been dormant either seed or, or rhizomes for not only decades perhaps uh, over a hundred years that haven't been seen since and then we look at historical photos back from the late and, and mid 1800s and see how some of these landscapes, they weren't forested, they were totally open. And those seeds of those plants still are, you know, not necessarily all of them on all sides, but we have done a lot of restoration work into what we call oak woodlands and oak pine woodlands, uh, shortleaf and longleaf pine uh, savannas and we're seeing plants come out of the seed bank that is just remarkable. And uh, it, it's common on some of these sites to see 200 or more species of plants per acre where previous, before beginning restoration efforts, there might have only been 20. And, and so there's a lot to be said about promoting uh, plant and, and wildlife diversity, and, and without even mentioning hog deer, but it, it's only ecologically sensible to manage for a diversity of, of plant communities, both for the plants and animals. And if hog deer benefit from that on some lands where hog deer is an objective, well, that's great. Well, it, it's more than great because it's a chance for the government to get that work done by interested people for free to have it funded and, and have that interest from hunters and go back to what I mentioned at the, at the start of the podcast about that Aldo Leopold's concept of us being stewards of the land and, and working in harmony with the land. It, it gives us, for a lot of us hunters, it gives us the opportunity to be involved in, in the land at a level of more than just shooting deer. Yeah, well, the answer in Australia was feed man, right? Feed managed with fire between you know, 40 and 60,000 years in parts of Australia have been burned annually, yes. biannually, and you know, if you go back hundreds of thousands of years before that, it was burnt naturally, like you said before. But, you know, we talked through the round table today about um, pre-white settlement, and there's always this push to get back to pre-white settlement. But where we are now, we can't get anywhere near pre-white settlement without some management and just locking up these places and let everything grow wild is not the answer. You, you go to Arnhem Land and it's still happening. It's burned every, probably, it's burned every year. It's burned annually. All Arnhem Land will be burned. And, and large tracts of Australia have been managed like that for, you know, between 40 and 60,000 years, depending on where you are. Well, in almost all of the United States now, and, and obviously there's some, some blocks, large areas that I'm not including, but over most of the country, the human population is such now that we can't allow natural disturbance, and I'm, I'm talking about fire, to just occur naturally. That, that, that can't be done. Yep. Their homes, uh, their structures, uh, you know, things in the way that, that we cannot allow wildfire to spread as it once did. Just like we don't have predators in most areas of the United States now to control white-tailed deer populations or populations of other animals. And so without those natural native predators and without being able to allow, you know, wildfire to just occur naturally, we have to implement population control and disturbance ourselves. And we have to do so in an informed and smart manner, not just willy-nilly, but, but in a manner that is science-based and data-driven. That's very, very important. Barry has a big smile on his face <laughs> on one of my previous statements. Smiles, all around the room. Um, which highlights 
a perception certainly amongst us who are involved in this in Australia how far behind we are. Uh, and maybe maybe we look at the United States with rose-coloured glasses and, and that North American model of wildlife conservation. Well, don't, don't, don't let those rose-coloured glasses completely obscure your view. Trust me, we, we have our issues and, and problems too, no doubt. Yeah, but it's data-driven. It's, it's fact-based. It's, it's well, it, 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 is, it is very, very fortunate that we have uh, a plethora of university wildlife programs, some, some very, very good uh, programs who, that, that are teaching our future wildlife managers and, and biologists. Of, of course, principal of those would be the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> we just assume that. We, 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 scoured, we scoured the US and thought we, we could bring anyone from anywhere, where do we go? We go to the University of Tennessee. <laughs> Well, but, what you need but, to do is ship some of your graduates down to your brother. But uh, I, I understand uh, you, you have inter university universities, of course, with uh, biology and some natural resource programs. But it would it would really really be helpful if uh, if if there was a university or two that had some some good wildlife management wildlife ecology biology management programs to help produce uh, some. Some, some good biologist manager, and, and perhaps you do. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not aware of it. But. University of Queensland does a, a bit of that. Okay, um, there's some people there, uh, Peter Murray and Neil Finch work on that, but it's very limited and, and certainly we, we lack that culture in this country of having decisions made by experts in wildlife management. And, and we have a disconnect between the role of hunters and wildlife. Yeah, uh, and, and, and we, we do in some cases in the U.S. as well, but we, we've talked about the notion of hunters coming together and providing and doing the management, you know, the volunteer effort, that kind of thing. You know, I, and I don't mean to offend anybody, please. Uh, Craig that, said that how many times over the past yeah, yeah, yeah. half week? <laughs> look, I'm really offended. That, that's an admirable effort, and, and I, I, I applaud it. However, that has to have guidance. I mean, let's just be honest. That that has to be guided by someone or a group of someones who are trained, educated in wildlife management, in land management, and it has to be some. There has to be someone to direct those efforts instead of those efforts kind of being a hodgepodge of this, that, and helter skelter going one direction or another. Because without that, you're not filling the lowest hole in the bucket. And that bucket is not going to be filled unless you know, you know, which which hole to plug first and and, and uh, how how to do so. So, you know, fire. Well, when do you burn? How often do you burn? How much do you burn? Uh, how how many animals should be taken? Which one should be taken? Uh, what what percentage of, of does versus males? You know, on it, there's just so many questions that a trained and competent wildlife biologist is, is, is needed to direct those efforts instead of just a group of, of very passionate and well-meaning hunters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. On that, I think we'll Great wrap it up. Great in the room at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and most of us who are involved in this are, and I, I prefaced our conversation today, we, we come to this as passionate hunters, but not with spe specific expertise. That's why I think your visit's been really valuable in this ongoing collaboration which we need to do more of this with people who have these sort of specific expertise. Just to wind up I think we'll go sort of backwards around the room, give Cole a chance to talk again um, and, and wrap it up. Craig this time tomorrow we'll be wishing he wasn't on a plane somewhere. <laughs> yeah I'll have about 30 hours of total travel time it's looking like but hey uh, looking forward to getting back to uh, my wife and family and getting back to uh, my regular job duties. It has been great fun and, and educational being here and uh, uh, really a trip of a lifetime. So I uh, hope I'm able to come back uh, again at, at some point. And, and in the meantime, and I mean this, if any of you all want to come to the U.S. to look at lands and 
visit with agency personnel who are practicing wildlife management, we would be tickled to, uh, to host you all. And if it's during a hunting season, well, so much the better. I think my boys, you're all going to be listening to this <laughs> podcast. Yeah. I think what a wonderful idea it would be to send me to the States. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts, Carl? I've only been talking with you this afternoon and this evening. Um, you've made me think of a lot of things that I hadn't thought of before. And the, the fire thing has obviously been on our minds in this country for a long time. It's what the uh, native people did um, and we don't do now. And I think there's a lot in that. We need to rethink it. Um, the departments and government agencies have seemed to be a little bit reticent about doing that. But uh, I think about my little property up the bush, I might start uh, trying to attract some things in there and do some stuff rather than just mowing the grass, yeah. grow something else. And, and you really open my eyes on that with the, the forbs and things like that. I've got a few acres of grass and trees, that's it. And um, yeah, it's just been very educational. Appreciate it. Thank you. No, it was actually a pleasure to actually uh, have Craig over for the last you know, three weeks. And uh, you know, I've, uh, even though I've been lazy with him on, on a regular basis, I've actually learned a lot from what he said and a lot from what he actually didn't say when he saw things. <laughs> and uh, and I you know, reiterate too that uh, you know, you know, on the suburban side, as we talked about on the interstate forest or you know, some public land and so forth, that forest is the management tool. I'm a professional forester. I've dealt with uh, you know, wildfires. I've dealt with uh, controlled prescribed burns, uh, regeneration burns, and you know, I've probably done two to three thousand or more burns, including you know, hundreds on my own property as well. And the big thing I you know, picked out in the last couple of weeks with landowners, none of them know how to burn, other than drop a match and hope it stops at the, the boundary fence. There's a lot more to burning than that. It's about the timing, making sure you've Control fire breaks in place, whether they're natural or man-made, and picking the right time of year. I'll give you an example. One uh, landowner we spoke to said, "Oh, we're going to donate some money to the Tabs Fire Service to come in and do our burn for us. They'll probably come in next week. The temperatures over the last few weeks have been horrendous. They'll wipe out their their forest and their um, you know, uh, overstory in seconds, which will probably take 20 years to 30 years for even." It's a fuel reduction burn for fire mitigation, but it's not a habitat. Not a habitat. That burn should be conducted midwinter, better conditions, cooler, flame height is less, and you achieve what you set out to do. Just things like that that, yes, there are people that to do the burn, but not achieve what the wildlife managers want, what the landowners want to do. So, yeah, as a take home message here, grab uh, Dr. Harper's book. Oh, I'll tell you the name one. of that, it's coming out shortly. He told me he's in debt and he needs to... Uh, Available at all good bookshops and some bad ones. I do through Amazon. So uh, <laughs> get on board and uh, support him in that. I just want a free one, Craig. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's been a joy to show him around. And uh, we've had a you know, successful trip in Tasmania. We've come up with a few uh, recommendations for Tasmania that we won't talk about here because it's pretty <laughs> in depth. And um, look, we look forward to his next visit if he ever wishes to, to venture out this way. Thank you. I think I would say that as, as Australians, we're quite insular and as Victorians, we're certainly, we look for solutions within Australia and within Victoria. And I think quite often we should be reaching out to some, some experts from overseas. You know, we've got a huge amount of experience close at home in New Zealand, um, obviously in the USA, um, North America, Canada. You know, there's this huge pool of expertise and yet we're trying to find solutions within Victoria or within Australia and I think quite often we should be reaching out to some of these experts. And if the ADA board would like to send Barry over, I'm sure the Field and Game board would love to um, to send me as well to help Barry. <laughs> I think between us we could probably learn some valuable things from Craig. Um, no, it's been great. The conversations over the last couple of weeks and the, uh, the few dinners we've had at the ADA dinner, etc. has been eye-opening for me as a hunter. I'm a duck hunter primarily, but I, I, I do hunt deer. I'm an ADA member. And, have a passion for deer hunting, lifelong deer hunter, and just to have that um, a bit of an awakening about how we manage the, the deer here is um, fascinating. So thank you for your time, it's been great. Well, I, I certainly appreciate again, the, the pleasure is all mine, and, and I hope uh, our, our visits have, have helped, uh, it, you know, when 
landowners and, and others in some way, form, or fashion. But if there has some been some benefit, it has not only been one way. I know I have benefited greatly. I've learned a tremendous amount. And when you're talking about visiting other countries, that is just as true for us to go places and see what others are doing. When we do that and we communicate and we share our ideas, that's how we advance, not remaining stagnant, doing what we've always done. Agreed.